Today's scripture comes from 1 Chronicles chapter 21, uh, beginning in verse 1 and continuing through chapter 22, verse 1. That is on page 350 in the few Bibles around you. If you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. First Chronicles chapter 21. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan, and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my lord, the king, all of them my lord's servants? Why then should my lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and in Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus said the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I, will I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw, and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, and David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house but do not let the plague be on your people. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go and raise an altar to the Lord on the, on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David, and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Give me the site of the threshing floor, that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, Take it, and let my lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for burnt offerings, and the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. But King David said to Ornan, No, but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site, and David built there an altar to the Lord, and presented bird offerings and peace offerings, and called on the Lord, and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel, and he put his sword back into its sheath. 
At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the, for the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. Amen. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Hey, we got our work cut out for us this morning, so I'm going to pray. We're going to jump right in. Father, we love your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us, that your word is living and active, and every single bit of it is for our good. It is for our good. It is to build us up, to encourage us, to exhort us, to strengthen us, to remind us, to convict us, to shape us into living in this world in accordance with what you say is good and right. And so this morning, we just ask you to come with a spirit of revelation upon your word. Would you speak to us? Would you give us grace to receive and respond to your word this morning? Would you meet us right where we are? Would you take the living and active word and cause it to break into our hearts? Would you break down places of hard-heartedness in our own hearts? God, would you build up places in our hearts that need to be edified and encouraged and exhorted by your word this morning? God, would you come and give strength by the grace of the Holy Spirit this morning as we open your word together? We ask for your glory, and in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So we've been walking our way through the books of Chronicles. If you've been with us in our church over the last season, uh, this is in line with where God's, God has us as a spiritual family. You know, we're really pressing into rebuilding and uh, reordering our lives around God's house and the worship of the Lord at the center place of our spiritual family together, right? In the middle of a world that we're experiencing a lot of darkness and decay and chaos, we, we think really clearly that the Word of God provides a blueprint for the people of God of how to respond in times of trouble. And it's by repairing the ruins, so to speak, the ruins of uh, God's rightly ordered worship. And, and one of the things that we're seeking to do as we pursue that is preach through these books where right at the front and the center of the whole uh, of, of the presentation of Israel's history is the temple, right? Right at the middle, this place where God is going to meet with his people, where they're going to offer up the right worship to the Lord and how they go about it and the obstacles that stand in the way of it and the difficulties that come as you pursue that. And we find ourselves in a really remarkable passage this morning. And you might go, what in the world does this have to do with building the temple and strengthening the people to lay hold of the purposes of God? And then what does it have to do with us? And I hope that we can get through all of that this morning. Would you look with me in your notes uh, at letter D? I just want to shape a little bit of where we are in the text. Last week, Ricky preached on 1 Chronicles 17, and we had this major shift where we saw David uh, express his desire to build a temple for the Lord, a house, a dwelling place, a resting place for the living God. We saw and have seen many times that David possessed this unique revelation of, of, of a desire and a longing to have a place where God could be at rest among his people. Uh, this vision consumed his life. It was, it was the E on the I chart for him. It was the North Star to, to find a place where God could be worshiped as God, uh, where there was fitting praise uh, that, that responded to his greatness and his people were at rest with him in the place of being ordered up under who he is in worship. It consumed his leadership. It consumed how he ordered his time and resources. I'll let you read Psalm 132 on your own. 
However, last week we did see that God, uh, in response to David's desire to build a house, actually stood against it. He, he would not permit David to go about building the house. Rather, David responded, or God responded to David by promising to give him an, a name and a kingdom that would last forever. It would ultimately be David's son Solomon that would build the temple, but, and the realities of the covenant made with David uh, that we saw last week are going to shape and govern essentially how the author makes sense of the rest of the story. So for the rest of First Chronicles, what we're going to see is even though God told David, no, you can't build the house, he doesn't lose his zeal for preparing for it. And everything that happens after chapter 17 is how does David make ready a place for Solomon to build the house? And then all of 2 Chronicles is essentially going, do the kings of Israel put worship of the Lord at the center or not? And when, th- when they do, things go really well. They're blessed. They experience the life and the blessing of living in covenant relationship with God. And when they forsake those ways, they experience uh, God's displeasure and uh, his just judgment against them. Look at letter F. So the remainder of First Chronicles, like I said, details the ways that David painstakingly makes preparations for Solomon to be ready and able to build the temple. In chapters 18 to 20, which we skipped over, but I just want to give you the essence of what those chapters are, David is expanding the boundaries of the kingdom of Israel in order to give the needed rest uh, against their enemies to build the temple. So there's these enemies around them that have to be subdued and, and, and brought to peace in order for Solomon to build the temple. And so what we see immediately after this covenant that God makes with David is he empowers David to go and bring the, the land to rest, so to speak. That's chapters 18 to 20. The point of chapter 21 if I can give it to you in one sentence, is how did we get the land where the temple is going to be built? That's the whole point of chapter 21, the outcome. However, this chapter, I think, is one of the most perplexing and theologically difficult narratives in the whole book of Chronicles. It brings us face to face with issues of God's sovereignty, with his wrath and judgment, Demonic activity, human responsibility. We got it all. I, I mean, this, this is a ton. And I don't know if you noticed it. I mean, uh, there's going to be so many things that I can't even hit. Uh, I mean, it's like Satan standing against David. We're going to talk about that one. But like all of the things that are packed up in here, there's so many of them. What we need to try to go is, what does this teach us about God's heart towards his people? What's going on? And then we're going to ask, how do we respond to that? So we're going to unpack a bit from the text. And then I want to spend a good bit of time making some theological applications for us. Okay, so look at Roman numeral two. We're just going to give a high level flyover of what's going on in the text, make some uh, uh, exegetical notes here, looking at what, what's happening, and then we'll, we'll take some time to apply. So we begin with this sentence, and this sentence at the beginning brings us front and center to one of the dilemmas of the text. Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Okay, so you've got three concepts introduced in this first sentence. Three things that are going to make, be really important for the text. Go to page two. The first is, we're introduced to this person, this being called Satan, right? We're introduced to a being that is standing against Israel and inciting David to take a census of the people. Right? The idea of a being called Satan 
is pretty elusive and unformed throughout the Old Testament. The name is simply derived from a common noun that means opponent or adversary. So the noun adversary is kind of used all throughout the Old Testament. And this is just a, a, a use of it that ascribes like a personal name, accuser, adversary, opponent. That's, that's what it means, right? So we've, we've come to see Satan as the devil and the serpent and those realities. But here, it's just simply stating the opponent, the adversary, stood against Israel and incited David to make a census of the people. So this is one of the three places in the Old Testament where Satan is used as a proper name. You can read the other two on your own. The first is in Job 1. Uh, throughout Job 1 and 2, we see this figure again come into uh, the presence of God as he's holding court. And he has a function to bring accusation against the people of God. And then we see a similar thing in Zechariah 3 as the prophet is shown this vision where the high priest is standing in the presence of God and there is Satan at his right hand standing to oppose him. He is accusing him and bringing accusation and opposition to uh, the high priest. Number two, these uses portray for us that there seems to be in the Old Testament a particular being uh, angelic, uh, and, and when I mean angelic, I don't mean good, I just mean um, not human, uh, uh, a supernatural being that's created by God, uh, angelic in God's court, who functioned in a role of opposing and accusing God's people. It's not until we get to the book of Revelation that the Holy Spirit, through uh, inspiration and revelation to John, declares or shows that this adversary was identified with the serpent in Genesis, the devil uh, of the New Testament, and the chief adversary of God and his people, right? So Revelation 12, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So what we get in this text is Satan stands up against Israel to oppose them. And to oppose them, he incites David to do something. Now you should be like, your, your, your theological conundrum uh, antennas should just be going off. Okay, mine are. We're gonna get to it. I'm just gonna lay the table for a minute. Leave those things for just a minute. Number four, it's also important to note here that the chronicler applies the role of adversity here to Satan, while the author of 2 Samuel ascribes the role of adversity to God himself. This creates yet another theological paradox for us. So if it wasn't just enough on the one reading, I'm gonna introduce another one you may not be familiar with. Look at when the author of Samuel writes this in chapter 24, verse one, how he narrates what's happening. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, go, number Israel and Judah. So if it wasn't sticky enough, we'll just put that one in there too. Okay? We're gonna come and deal with it in a little bit. I'm just gonna lay the table, like I'm saying. Okay, so Satan, this being that is the opposer, the adversary stands against God's people and incites David to do something, right? So then we see the second piece of information is that he's standing against Israel, right? In this verse, we see that Satan is not just standing against David, but is standing against the whole of God's people. I think this is an important piece of information as we understand what's happening and we understand the relationship between the king and the people. Uh, Ricky, Ricky did a great job of highlighting this last week, but the king from this point on becomes the representative head or the figurehead of the redeemed people uh, from this point on in the narrative, right? So uh, if you know the Bible narrative just a little bit, God created Adam as the first representative head of all of humanity. 
He sinned, and so all humans were in Adam, in sin. Then he began to choose a line through which his redemption would come. And then he chose a son called the nation of Israel, where he broadened out, these are my people, and I'm going to deal with humanity through them and their obedience or disobedience to the law. But with David, he refocuses it back into the king who will ultimately come in Jesus, who will be the final Adam, the true king of David, the true Israel, the one who stands and brings a way for redemption to come. So it's likely that we see that Satan is here standing against Israel for the purpose of testing them in accordance with God's covenant promises. So Satan stands against Israel, and then how he does this is he incites David to do something. It's not to all Israel that Satan comes, but rather to David. I think this demonstrates that David is in fact the representative head of God's people at that stage in redemptive history. This testing of David's fidelity to God's covenant follows a really common theme throughout the Bible. God chooses, appoints, or anoints someone to walk in his purposes, and then they are tested. This happened with Adam, right? Adam is created to be the image of God, to live in communion with him, expand his ways to the ends of the earth, fill, multiply, subdue, take dominion. Then he's tested. We see this with Abraham, right? Abraham receives this promise that the, his, his covenant is going to come through his children. What's, what's Abraham have to do almost immediately upon receiving the fulfillment of the covenant promise in Isaac? He's tested. He's tested according to the promise, right? We see this with Israel. They're brought out, redeemed. Then they walk through a season of testing in the wilderness. David walks through this. The reason I'm belaboring this is this is a really important theme in the Bible. We're going to come back to it. But it's also a really important theme that gets fulfilled and established preeminently in Jesus, right? It, it, it happens ultimately in Jesus. Look at number three. This points to Jesus's role as the ultimate son of David, right? Immediately after his public confirmation that he is God's son, and his anointing for public ministry, Jesus is driven into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. So we see this happen again, right? When Jesus was baptized, look at Matthew 3 here. Jesus is baptized. The heavens are opened. He sees the Spirit of God coming and resting upon him. A voice thunders from heaven. This is my beloved Son, the one with whom I'm pleased. Then, there's no chapter breaks in the, in the original text, this is the very next reality. Jesus is declared, this is my son. He's the one who's going to fulfill my purposes. Then he's led by the spirit for what purpose? To be tested, to be opposed, to be stood against. And he, praise the Lord, ultimately succeeds. Look at page three. Satan comes against Israel, incites David. Okay, that's, that's our first set of ideas. Then, so David does it, right? He, he tells Joab, go number the people, go count the people, and then we get the next main movement is God's really angry by this. And I don't know if you're like me, right? You read this and you go, why is God so angry about this, right? This, this is very akin, if you were here several weeks ago, back in 1 Chronicles 13, when David tries to take the ark the first time, and they do it, and it's about to fall, and the guy reaches out to try to catch it, and the Lord strikes him dead. And if we don't know the background, we don't understand what's actually going on, we could be tempted to go, why is this such a big deal, right? We, we might be tempted to feel the same thing here, why is this such a big deal? Why does this deserve 
God coming and going, this is how I'm going to deal with this. David, you have to make a choice between three years of famine, three months of being pursued by your enemies, or three days of pestilence. Seems uh, like this is a big deal. Right? The action of taking the census brought upon David and Israel the displeasure of the Lord. So for taking the census, the Lord gives David, through Gad the seer, three options. Right? We, we, we saw those. In a similar manner to what we experienced in 1 Chronicles 13, it could be easy for us to believe that this is an overreaction on God's part related to a simple numbering of the people. However, in a similar manner to in 1 Chronicles 13, the chronicler gives us both narrative clues and expects us to have a familiarity with what the Old Testament says about these things so that we understand what is displeasing to the Lord. Let me just give you two pieces of information that aren't just abundantly evident on first reading that you may not connect that are important to understanding. First, we see Joab. Joab gives a little um, tip off as to why this is such a big deal. Somehow, some way, the chronicler wants us to understand that David's act of counting the people at this time was an act of unbelief, right? What are the language of uh, Joab says here? Look at verse three. Joab stands against David, right? David goes, hey, go number all the people for me. Joab, he has some understanding and wisdom and he goes, May the Lord add to the people a hundred times as many as they are. Now there's something that Joab understands here that David was acting in a presumptuous manner against the covenant promises of God. God had promised David that he would subdue his enemies and God had promised the people of Israel that they would be more numerous than the stars in the heavens and the sands of the seashore. Something about this at this time the author wants us to see is David has an unbelieving heart toward God's ability to fulfill his promises. That's one of the things that we need to see here. The second thing we need to see here, and the author expects us to know this, is that there were specific provisions in the Old Testament for taking a census that came with them severe consequences if not followed. So again, in a similar manner to 1 Chronicles 13, how they moved the ark mattered as much as that they were moving the ark. Their obedience mattered. Their obedience, when God said, this is what I ask of you, their submission to it is what expresses their faith. Okay, so there is very clear orders for how they were to take a census. And the implication is, because we see the negative outcome, the implication is they did not abide by this. There's something about the way they did it that they did not go according to how God had desired. Look at Exodus 30, verse 11. The Lord says to Moses, when you take a census of the people of Israel, each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them. Why? so that there be no plague among them when you number them. So there's a mixture here where what we're seeing is something about the way that David is going about this represents a lack of faith. There is an unbelief that is present in David, right? And we actually know this because David comes to his senses in verse eight. Look at letter C, after recounting the displeasure of the Lord, the chronicler narrates that David's repentant and he turns his heart toward God upon this sin. It's important to see that David does not seek to excuse himself from responsibility. Now, put a pin in this. This is going to really matter. David doesn't go, the devil made me do it. David doesn't go, you made me do it. Both of those realities are at play. God was angry against Israel. He incited David to do this. Satan was standing against Israel. He incited David to do this. David goes, I did this. I did this. He doesn't blame God. He doesn't blame the devil. 
and he doesn't blame his circumstances. He doesn't go, man, those armies out there were just so big, I needed to know if we were comparable. I needed to know if we could, we had what it took to stand against them. What does David do? He fully owns his sin, right? I have sinned. He owns his culpability. I have done this thing. That he is morally responsible. He made the choice. And he rep repents for his unbelief. That's, that's what foolishness means. In the Old Testament, foolishness and unbelief are synonyms. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Right? When we're acting foolish, it's acting in a posture of unbelief. Right? So he says, I sinned, I was responsible, and I was unbelieving for this. That's his ownership. So then he's given this decision between the judgments that were to befall Israel. And David pleads to fall into the hands of God because of his mercy. Understanding that even in the expression of justice, God alone remains merciful and gracious. I mean, I don't know if you caught that. Look at, look at these verses here. Verse 13 in chapter 21. David's faced with this choice. And David goes, this is distressing. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord. Why? Because he's merciful. He's merciful. As he's administering justice, he will never do it in a way that abandons his own mercy. He, even, even as he's judging, he does it in the most merciful way. I can't believe that about any other way. If you give us into the hand of our enemies, they're going to be exacting all the way down. When you, if you judge us, there will be mercy that saturates it. And then look, we actually see this play out. David knows exactly what he's doing. Then in verse 14, it says, so the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. 70,000 men fell. God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to do it, what does he do? He relents. Why? Because he's merciful. David knows exactly what he's doing. He goes, I'll take the hand of God because the discipline of the hand of God is more merciful than being handed over to uh, my enemies. So he understands here a couple, couple verses that this embodies that I love. Habakkuk prays something similar in Habakkuk 3.2. He says, in wrath, remember mercy. Even in wrath, God remembers mercy. And in James 5, or sorry, James 2, James says, mercy triumphs over judgment, right? Mercy of God has the, 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 the final word. So we see that happen. The angel's sent. He doesn't destroy it all. So David then acquires the land for the temple and appeases God's wrath. So to appease God's wrath, David purchases the threshing floor of Ornan to build an altar and offer a sacrifice. When Ornan offers the gift to David, to give this to David, all the resources, the field, all the things to get the offering and the sacrifice there, David goes, I'm not gonna take it from you. I can't offer to the Lord something that didn't cost me something. So he's going, I gotta, I gotta put skin in the game here. In order for it to be an offering to the Lord, it has to cost. So he pays for it, builds an altar, and then in a remarkably beautiful portrait, he sets up the off altar and God sends fire from heaven, kind of to go paid and accepted. And he reverts his anger against him. And then we see that this is where David sets up the temple. Okay, so how are we going to make sense of this? Go to page four. I've got three, three things that I'd love to work into our hearts if we have time for all three. 
from this. And I think each of these three actually are essential for us as a spiritual family, as we are setting out to strengthen what God's at work doing. These are all three really important realities that I think have to be, um, we have to be aware of and have biblical perspective on in order to walk uh, faithfully before the Lord. So letter A, I think the first thing that we could talk about is the importance or even maybe the necessity of testing. We, would, we don't like this one. This one's, this one's tough for us. But we do see a biblical pattern that every time God calls, every time God leads, every time God brings an individual or a family or a corporate community into pursuing obedience and faithfulness to his call, he tests them. He tests them. One of the lessons I think we can learn from this passage is the importance and necessity of seasons of testing in our lives as believers and as a spiritual family. So whenever God calls someone or a corporate body to a work, there will be seasons of testing that must happen as God brings forth maturity and allows his work to be strengthened. Here's, here's the hard truth. Most of our growth before the Lord happens in seasons of adversity. Most of our growth happens in seasons of trial, testing, and discipline. It's just the way it works. It's just the way it works. We wouldn't like it that way. I mean, we would much prefer, if we got to write the story, we would prefer that most growth happens in seasons of abundance, seasons of just like the cash is good, relationships are easy, life's awesome, I have tons of energy and my body feels good. My, my emotions are stable, right? That's not where most growth happens. Most growth happens in seasons of adversity. This is also because what we see in the Bible again and again, and we're gonna see this pattern played out in Chronicles as we walk through it. You can see this pattern in the New Testament you can see this pattern if you just watch your life. Seasons of reprieve and fruitfulness often lead to seasons of complacency. It's just the way we are. We're sinful, we're weak, we're broken. We take this like, oh man, this is good. The blessings of God, amazing, praise the Lord. But then we take them and we grow complacent and we grow lethargic or apathetic or we lose sight of what God has for us. And so God in his kindness orchestrates seasons of adversity because he wants us to grow and be conformed into his image. And it is the primary place that it happens. Understanding the complexities of these types of seasons, I think is essential for us as we walk through them in order that we might rightly understand what God is at work doing and what he desires for us in the midst of them, right? We'll have seasons like this. Uh, if you've been with us for a little time, we, walk, we just came out of a season like this. We walked through a, a really corporate time of testing, shaking, adversity, difficulty, trial, right? We, it kind of feels like we're in a little bit of a reprieve right now. Praise the Lord. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not despising it. Praise the Lord. There will be another one. There will be another one. Let me, let me just as a spiritual father, look at us and go, there's going to be another one. Okay, so learning how to understand what is happening, what is God doing, what's he after really matters. And I want to state it now and then again and again. So when we're walking through it, you can look at me when I'm losing my mind one day and you can go, Ron, remember, 
this is what God's doing. And then I can look at you and go, hey, I've always said, this is what God's doing, right? Meaning I just took what you said to me and then said it back. We need each other like that. And we're gonna, so individually, we'll have these, corporately we'll have these. Okay, so a biblical test, number three, is designed for a purpose. It's designed to highlight or reveal what our lives are truly built on. I've said this uh, a lot for the last several years. Uh, One that's really easy for us to uh, have access to. I'm afraid as we get further away, maybe we'll forget. But for a while, it was really easy to have access to. What happened in 2020 with COVID was a like lower T in our lives, a lot of us test. I don't mean it was like uh, the ultimate one, like when we stand in the presence of God. Uh, that's, that's what I think the ultimate quote unquote test is. We'll talk about that maybe. You can go to 1 Corinthians 3 where the fire of God evaluates or tests the quality of our lives. That's the ultimate test. So we have lots of lower T tests as we, we get to walk through. COVID did not create anything. It just showed us what was already there. In our lives, in our society, in our spiritual family, a storm, this is Jesus's uh, picture in Matthew 7. A storm, when it blows against a house, does not create cracks in the foundation. It shows where they are. Right? When a pressure comes upon a foundation, if there is a crack, it will be shown for what it is. That's what a biblical test is. So when you hear a biblical test, don't think about your college calculus class. Right? Like, I have an examination at the end that I study and prepare for, and this is a pass-fail thing. A biblical test is much more akin to what you do to metal to test its quality. You heat it up to its breaking point, and what is impure separates from what is pure, right? But it takes a fire, real pain, right? Adversity, seasons of testing are like that in our lives. Hebrews 12, God is a consuming fire. When he comes to our lives in a season of testing, the fire gets turned up, what is pure gets separated from what is impure. Why? He wants us to see what is impure so we can offer it to him and he can scrape it away so that we are more pure, conformed into his image. Okay, so what's going on in those seasons? I can give you three things from this text. I think this text actually shows us an unbelievable picture of what's going on. And I remember walking through this the last couple of years, people would be like, what's going on? I'd be like, which element do you want to talk about? Which one do you want to talk about? Number one, God is disciplining. God is disciplining. God is sovereign. He's powerful over every season of our lives. He allows and ordains seasons of testing. So to, to discipline his children. First Samuel or, or second Samuel 24 here, when it says, God was angry again at Israel. What he's doing is he's going, there's something going on in your corporate life that I am against and it needs to be dealt with. So in my love, I am going to bring forth a season where you're tested. So that comes to the surface so I can remove it and deal mercifully with you yet again. This happens so that the Lord can shake the things in our lives that can be shaken in order that we would receive foundations that cannot be shaken. God God moves, right? So in a season of testing, is it God? Yes. God is at work disciplining and in the places where he is disciplining, what we need to do is submit to him in loving obedience. That's what faith is. We say yes. 
We want to receive it. We want to align ourselves with him. Everything that he's trying to scrape out of our lives, we want to go take it and conform us into your image. Also, here's, here's something really fun that you may not catch from this. God also uses these seasons to bring forth outcomes that we would never have imagined and probably would not have asked for apart from them. Look at this. Verse 18, God wanted this land. God goes, okay, I've got this big, grand scheme going on. I want that land for the temple. Israel has this problem with them. David needs to be uh, tested in this way. I've got a plan to work them all together. I can do all of those things with one fell swoop. And he does. And the outcome, look at verse 18. The angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. God wanted that land. That wasn't David's idea. David was told, go get that land. Why? God wanted it as his. So there are outcomes that God wants from these seasons that you cannot see beforehand. And we wouldn't know to ask for, and we wouldn't say yes for. If we knew it on the front end, we'd go, no, 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 thank you. No, thanks. I'll, I'll, go a different, I'll go the easier way. But oftentimes we're on the back end and we go, wow. I've said, it, I've said it to people so many times. God is the only person who can create a scenario where you end up in a spot and you go, I love everything about this land. This is amazing. This is like designed perfectly. I'm, I'm really happy here. I'm really alive here. He, he wove this all together and I literally hated every step to get here. Every one of them, I went, nope, I wouldn't have done it that way. Hate, hated that decision. Wish I, that wouldn't have happened. Man, I lost friendships there. I wish, I wish that wouldn't have happened. Wow, I, you know, I didn't like any of it. And then I get there and I'm like, praise be to the Lord, you brought me to a broad place. God's the only person that can do that. He's the only being that can lead that way. His math is different than ours. Okay, so God is at work disciplining and getting his ends. There are also real spiritual realities, demonic activity. We see in seasons of testing that Satan is at work to oppose, accuse, and stand against God's people. During seasons of testing, God allows the increase of demonic influence and the activity to put more pressure on God's people, so to speak, right? To see the cracks, to test those places. In, that, in response to that, we are to discern where he is at work and seek to, by the grace of God, resist him, resist this influence by fighting against it with the armor of God. You have scriptures there. So then you go, is God at work or are there demonic things happening? And the answer is actually yes. Both are true. Both are happening. Both are at play. And we need to respond to them in different ways, right? We respond to God with love and humble trust and submission. We respond to works of darkness by resisting them, by standing against them, by taking up the armor of God and fighting against them. Then the last thing that's at play, if you want to go, that wasn't enough, here's another one. You and I are running around making choices and bumping into each other. The reality of God's sovereign leadership and the activity of Satan and the demonic in no way excuses the moral responsibility that each one of us has in these seasons, right? We see from this passage, David takes full responsibility for his actions. We don't get to play the card, well, God's just at work doing something, or man, I was incited by the devil. We got none of that. We make choices, which means we repent for sinful choices, just like David does here. I sinned, I did it, I was unbelieving. God, would you have mercy? And we pursue obedience. That's what this means together. Okay, so this is important to walk in those seasons together. The second thing that I want to highlight, and we'll close here, 
is this passage does show us, again, the severity of sin. It shows us God's just wrath, and it shows us that redemption has to be costly. Redemption has to be costly. We see from this passage, sin is not neutral. It is treason against God's holiness and his glory. As such, it is worthy of being the recipient or the experience of his just retribution and punishment that's incurred because of God's wrath. Because of this, I think this passage teaches us or invites us to respond by not making light of sin, not making light of compromise, not making light of disobedience in any form, right? We cannot have tolerance in our own hearts for places of compromise. We have to look at them as what they are and the severity that is rightly held towards them. But number two, the beauty of the gospel is that God has made a way for his wrath to be appeased ultimately. Not just one time here, not just against a pestilence, but against his eternal holy justice. He's made a way for this to be appeased and for us to come and be set right in relation to him, apart from anything we could do. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God answered from heaven, paid in full, accepted upon the sacrifice of Jesus. Think about this. The greater David, the greater David, when offering the ultimate sacrifice to appease the wrath of God, said just like David, I will not offer to God something that costs me nothing. Cost him his whole, whole life, his own life. The life of the sinless son of God offered up as the appeasing sacrifice to the wrath of God. What a glorious and beautiful reality. And we see that God thunders from heaven, not by answering with fire, but by turning the entire sky dark, ripping the temple veil in two, he declares from heaven, paid and accepted in full. Now any that receive this gift by faith can be assured that the sword of the Lord is no longer raised against us. No longer raised against us. Amen.